Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the FACT Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am FACT's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start today, I just want to take a moment and thank the National Peanut Board for their kind sponsorship of today's show and for all of their support over the years. Today, we're exploring feeding infants peanut to avoid the development of a peanut allergy, best practices for infant nutrition, and how to discover easy-to-understand information about early allergen introduction with Sherry Coleman-Collins, MS, RDN, and LD, who will help us find the knowledge and confidence to change an entire generation. Welcome, Sherry. We are honored to have you back on Facts Roundtable podcast. We always enjoy the information you bring, and we always, always walk away smarter. Thank you so much, Caroline. I'm thrilled to be here. I love your podcast, and I'm I'm happy to be a guest again. That makes me very happy to hear. Before we get started, you have been on the show before, but let's help our new listeners get to know you better. Can you share your background and how you became involved in the food allergy world? Sure. So um, I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist, and I've been a dietitian for about 15 years. And I started my career as a dietitian in pediatrics, loved working with kids, really had a great time working at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, where I live, worked with patients who had inflammatory bowel disease and other kinds of GI conditions. And that was where I first started working with patients who had food allergies because there's a bit of an overlap sometimes with food intolerances and even some IgE-mediated food allergies and non-IgE food allergies in that population. So that was sort of my first introduction to food allergies as a dietitian. And then I started working in school nutrition. And if you have kids who go to school and they have food allergies, you know that working with the food service staff is incredibly important. And I was the only person on our team who had clinical experience with pediatrics. So I had the opportunity to really take the lead on developing our food allergy plans and loved doing that. And then sometime after I had been there about five years, I found this opportunity to work with America's peanut farmers through the National Peanut Board. And I joined their team in communications and have been working with them for about 10 years now and just have continued to work in the area of food allergies because I just love it. Thank you for sharing. And your background is really quite fascinating to me. And as you were speaking, I was thinking, thank goodness for people like you. This is really important for us with food allergies. Well, thank you. And I will say that, you know, it's an interesting common thread through my professional journey. And I think a lot of people will say, whether you're in healthcare, you're a dietitian or whatever you do, a lot of times there's sort of this common thread. And for me, I have a real strong interest, obviously, in food science and diagnosis. And I think that food allergies are an area where there's so much opportunity for misinformation and misdiagnosis. And it's 
so important to get the right diagnosis, whatever it is, whether it's you do have food allergies or you don't have food allergies, having the right information is absolutely essential and life-changing in a positive way, either way, so that you know what to do and you know how to stay safe or you know what you can eat so that you're not over-restricting. So I love working with people who have food allergies and I just think it's some of the most valuable work that I get to do. We're happy you're on the food allergy team for sure. So now, the National Peanut Board has been working with the American Academy of Pediatrics to support education for their members. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so the American Academy of Pediatrics, as you know, is an amazing organization that supports pediatricians all over the country and really even all over the world. And they have members who are pediatricians. They also have members who are other allied health professionals, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs. Even dietitians are oftentimes involved with AAP, even if we're not members of the organization. But they have a resource for their members called PediaLink, which is their online learning center for their members. And the National Peanut Board supported the development of an online course called Peanut Allergy Prevention Through Early Introduction. And the goal was to provide a resource for pediatricians to be able to understand what the new science is around early introduction and how we can prevent peanut allergies by feeding peanut foods early to infants and really to help them address a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding that their patients might have about the issue. Who is the intended audience exactly for Pedialink, and then how can they find it? The intended audience was healthcare professionals. So it is pediatricians, residents, other doctors, family physicians would benefit from it. But it also is available for nurses and nurse practitioners. It's available for any healthcare. It's free. So really anyone can go there and take the module, even if you're not a healthcare professional, if you're interested in learning about it, you can go there and you can take the course. Obviously, the audience is healthcare professionals. So it's going to be in some places a little bit higher level learning. And obviously, if you're not a healthcare professional, it's not going to count toward your continuing education. But we all need to continue our education. <laughs> so it can be found on the AAP's website for Pedialink. And I'll share the link with you if you want to share that with your audience. Absolutely. And listeners, I will make sure all of the links that relate to today's conversation will be in the show notes so you can get hold of them and continue. Now let's turn our attention over to peanut allergy prevention. The last time you were on the show, you helped us understand the updated dietary guidelines. Can you provide a brief overview of those guidelines and then the role that they play in the prevention of food allergies? Absolutely. So this is very, very exciting in the nutrition world that happened at the end of last year. The Dietary Guidelines for Americans was released, and this document is really meant to guide America's eating habits, right, based on what we know are shortfalls. So thinking about the population as a whole, where are we doing great? Where are we where do we need to make some improvements in our diet? And so the dietary guidelines are meant to guide us. In the past, it did not address infant and young children. It just didn't have guidelines or recommendations for them. But this time around, they included information for children ages two and under. And in addition to talking about things like limiting sugar and sodium, they also talked about introducing allergens to help prevent food allergies. 
Specifically, they called out the research on peanut. So it has a lot of information about introducing peanut, but it also talked about the importance of liberalizing the diet for infants to include all allergens. Even though we don't have research that shows that introducing all of the allergens might prevent all allergies, we know that it's safe to introduce those foods as long as it's in a safe form. And so the dietary guidelines supported and shared out really at a population level what we know about introducing allergens in all these different spaces and from the expert consensus. Thank you so much for getting us up to date and bringing that nice clarity to us. I've heard the term baby-led weaning, but what does this mean and how does it actually interplay with this early peanut introduction? That's a great question. Baby-led weaning is one of those super hot buzzwords in infant feeding right now. And it's not brand new. It's been around for a while. And it's funny because if you think about pre-packaged baby food, right, before the days when you could go to the grocery store and buy purees, parents were kind of already doing this <laughs> at home. They were already feeding their babies from the table. And that's really the goal or the sort of the methodology behind baby-led weaning is to introduce babies to foods that are natural or are mimicking and very similar or the same as the food that the rest of the family is already eating. So rather than feeding a baby purees or feeding the baby lots of purees, you introduce a lot of other soft cooked safe foods along the way. So in some baby led weaning sort of um, ideas or populations or groups, maybe they don't use purees at all. In many of them, they use some purees, but they also use whole foods as well. So the key to baby led weaning is really thinking about how do I make this food safe for the baby without necessarily making it a completely pureed product. Does that make sense? So is it along the lines of like mashed potatoes, you know, versus taking, you know, potatoes and just really pureeing it down into liquid? Sure, that, that might be one. If you were serving mashed potatoes for dinner, then you could certainly give that to the baby. But you could also do baked potatoes or you could do potato wedges. So if you had wedges that you had baked until they were soft inside and the baby could hold the wedge, then that might work as well for baby led weaning. The key to it really is thinking about um, where the baby is along the journey, right? So babies can start eating solid foods around six months and some babies have teeth, some babies don't have teeth. Some babies are further along in their journey, right? So thinking about, you know, so much happens between six months and 12 months, you know, you've got kids. When they start eating solid foods, they can only handle certain textures. But as we introduce more textures to them, we help them learn how to chew and swallow and manipulate that food in their mouth. If we keep them on purees for an extended period of time, the thinking is that it, they really don't learn that ability. They don't gain that ability. And they may actually reject more complex textures if we don't introduce these textures to them early. So there's sort of this window of introduction. It's very interesting when we think about, and you asked about what does this have to do with peanuts? So as we think about introducing different flavors, different textures, different types of foods, we're building the child's palate. If we don't introduce them to these foods, then they may not be interested in those foods and they may actually reject them later. So when we think about potentially allergenic foods like peanuts. Obviously, we can't give a baby a whole peanut. That's not even in the baby led weaning world. That's not safe. But we can use thinned peanut butter. So peanut butter that we add a little warm water to. We can bread that onto a very gently 
toasted piece of whole wheat bread that's an appropriate size for the baby based on their developmental age and sort of their developmental readiness. And then they can self-feed that, right? They can suck on it. They can chew it up. They can swallow it. They can eat it in a way that is that promotes their chewing ability and their interest in food and also introduces this allergenic food. This is fascinating. We never knew any of this 20 years ago. So this is really interesting information. So now you mentioned developmentally ready. How does a listener find more information on how to know what are those milestones or what are those triggers that are letting you know that baby's ready for the next step? That's an excellent question and one that really every mom should ask, every dad, anyone who's feeding a baby. So I would say if you've got specific questions about your child's readiness, it's important to stay connected with your pediatrician, right? Talk to the doctor, make sure that they're on board with you and you're on the same page. Most babies are going to start to be ready for solid foods by around six months. They're going to show an interest. So they're going to watch you as the food goes from your plate to your mouth. They're going to be very interested. They may lean towards you. They may even do that with their mouth open. They might start to chew. Even if nothing's in their mouth, they may watch you eating and start to chew. Those are some signs that the child is very interested. The baby's interested in food. That's a good sign. When you see that the child's able to sit up on their own without a lot of extra support. Obviously, they need to have good head control. They need to have good trunk control as well so they can sit up while they're eating. Those are some really good signs. There's a developmental sort of milestone as well with the tongue. So it's called tongue thrust, the tongue thrust reflex. What that means is like if you put something in the baby's mouth, they're going to spit it out. When that reflex disappears, as you start to give them food and they don't immediately spit it out with their tongue, when that starts to go away, then you know that they're ready for sure. Even babies who are a little bit further along may do that when you give them a new texture, a new flavor, right? We've all seen babies who are like, Bleh! when you give them something for the first time, mashed peas, and they're like, Bleh! <laughs> but that doesn't mean they're not going to like it eventually. Thank you. That was a wonderful explanation. So moving on now, how can parents continue to feed their baby peanut products safely through infancy and into toddlerhood? We've talked about these textures and these different areas here. And what nutritional value does peanut offer to young children? Great question. So absolutely, you know, as we think about feeding infants, it's very different than feeding toddlers. So when we're thinking about feeding infants, we want to think about food safety and preventing choking. And that's true at every age, but certainly in the infant population, it's the most important thing we need to consider. So we need to thin peanut butter. You can use powdered peanut butter. It's available across the country now. You can mix that into rice cereal or applesauce. As the child gets a little bit older, you can start to bake those things into muffins and teething biscuits and things like that. There are also a lot of products on the market now. It's very exciting to see what's happening in innovation in the infant space when it comes to peanut foods and other potential allergens. There are puffs now that are available across the country that have peanut baked into them that are very safe for infants. They melt in the mouth. They're small. They're the right size for an infant. And they also help promote that pincher grasp, teaching them fine motor skills while they're eating, which is super fun. And then when a child becomes a toddler, you know, you can start to become more adventurous based on their ability to chew and what textures they like. And you can start to incorporate peanut foods just like you would into your own diet. As they start to eat more table foods, you just incorporate it the same way. And once a child is old enough to safely eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, they can certainly do that as well. And when we think about nutritional value, we know is that peanuts have more protein than any other nut. So they're a good source of protein. They contain primarily good fats. So we know that babies and toddlers 
need lots of good fat and protein for their growth. And we know that peanuts also contain a lot of vitamins and minerals that are essential for growth in children. Thank you so much. I actually didn't realize there was that much nutrition in peanut. I had heard that there are other tree nuts that were strongly recommended, but peanut is very accessible. So thank you for sharing that information. Well, you're welcome. And I would say all nuts are nutritious. They're just a great food to introduce early and then keep in the diet. We certainly recognize the value of nuts in general. And I think that what you said about the cost is such an important part of healthy eating. We don't want to ever say to somebody or make people think that they have to spend a lot of extra money in order to eat healthy. That's just not true. What resources might you suggest to listeners that they can turn to to explore the early peanut introduction and to possibly find recipes to help them feed their children peanut? Well, the National Peanut Board actually has a website that we developed called preventpeanutallergies.org. And at that website, you can find all kinds of great information. You can find testimonials from families who have introduced peanut foods to their infants, even those who might have a child that already has a food allergy. And then their second child, they wanted to introduce early. That's a great resource. And it includes some recipes and ideas for introducing peanut foods and keeping it in the diet. It also includes links to a lot of other resources like the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. They have a guideline for introducing peanut foods in infants to prevent peanut allergies. And that even includes some recipes as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this great information. So before we wrap up today, is there anything else you want to make sure our listeners have heard from you? Well, I think that one of my goals as a dietitian, and certainly when I talk about early intros, really to empower parents, to make them feel confident, to encourage them to ask questions and not to be afraid. We live in a time where there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of fear around food. And I think when it comes to food allergies, there's a lot of fear there as well. And the great thing about early intro is that it can help reduce that fear. It can help hopefully eliminate that fear by reducing the risk of developing allergies in the first place. You know, as that old saying goes, prevention's worth a pound of cure, right? If we can prevent food allergies, we should. This is a safe way for us to try to do that. We know that early intro may not prevent every food allergy. There are still going to be some food allergies that happen regardless of early intro, but we know that early intro can be very effective in reducing the risk. I have to be honest to say with having a 23-year-old and an 18-year-old with food allergies, learning about early introduction feels like a miracle to me, that there's actually this action that you could take that is affordable, that is within reach. I mean, I just really have visions of preventing the next generation from having food allergies. Well, I am with you on that, Caroline. I absolutely believe that we can make such a huge difference. I think also I would like to say that if you're a mom and you're listening to this and you have a child with a food allergy, don't feel guilty that you may not have introduced allergens early. You know, I think it's really important to recognize that we all do the best we can with the information we have. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the recommendation was not to introduce early. So we're learning and as we learn, our behavior changes. So if you didn't introduce and you had a child that developed food allergies, it's not your fault you did what you needed to do, they may have developed a food allergy anyway. We just do the best we can as we go along. Now we know something new, and that is that early intro is powerful. It is preventive, and we should be doing it, and we just have to move forward with that. 
Sherry, once again, this has been a fabulous time with you. I really appreciate you bringing up that last point, and I very much appreciate your time coming to speak with us, bringing us great information, bringing us good inspiration as well. So thank you so much for being with us, and I look forward to having you on the show again in the future. Thanks, Caroline. Have a great day. Before we say our goodbyes today, I just want to say thank you one more time to the National Peanut Board for being a kind sponsor of Facts Roundtable Podcast. Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.